Welcome to the IEEE Brain Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This episode is brought to you by IEEE Brain in partnership with the IEEE Magnetic Society. Mark Stiles, an active member of the IEEE Magnetic Society, an employee of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, shares his insights on the Society's work as it relates to neuroscience and brain-inspired computing technologies. Mark also offers advice for students and young professionals who might be interested in relevant technology fields. Mark, thank you for taking the time to contribute to the IEEE Brain Podcast series. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and work experience? So, uh, I started at uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which I'll refer to as NIST from now on, uh, about 30 years ago. And at that time, I switched from what I had worked on as a graduate student and as a postdoc and started working on magnetic nanostructures and spintronics. Now, magnetic nanostructures are structures basically of, for what I've been working on, thin films of magnetic materials separated from each other by thin films of non-magnetic materials. And then spintronics is the other thing that I have been focusing on more recently. And these are electronic devices made out of magnetic materials in which the electron spins are playing an active role in how the devices perform. The idea is that I've been focusing on, say, for the last 20 years, is that you can manipulate the magnetization using currents of these spins rather than by using magnetic fields. The interaction between electricity and magnetism drives much of modern technology. People may tend to think of magnetism as uh, not all that important compared to electricity, but you know all electric generators, transformers, electric motors, uh, earbuds, all of these things have a crucial role played by the interaction of uh, electricity and magnetism. And the mediator of that interaction in most of these cases is that an electric current generates a magnetic field which can move a magnetic material, or a moving magnetic material generates a magnetic field which can create an electric current. So those interactions are the, the foundation of a lot of modern technology. What's been of interest recently is the interaction between electricity and magnetism that's mediated by flowing currents of spins. And these spins are basically carrying small magnetic moments. And when these flow into a a magnetic material, they can also change the magnetization of of those materials. And electronic devices based on those effects is what I've been uh, working on for most of the last 20 years. And in Just recently, in the last few years, I've started working on how could we use these spintronic devices to do brain-inspired computing. So, Mark, can you give us an overview of the objectives and work of the IEEE Magnetic Society? And how exactly do they relate to IEEE Brain? 
the IEEE Magnetic Society has sort of as its mission uh, promoting the advancement of science, technology, applications, and training in magnetism. And like I mentioned earlier, this is actually quite broad because um, magnetism affects a lot of different uh, commercial technologies, motors, generators, transformers, actuators, sensors, and more recently, electronic devices. And there are a couple of ways in which uh, magnetics interacts with uh, neuroscience. And, and one is that in the brain, you have uh, tiny electric currents uh, that communicate information between different neurons. And those create small magnetic fields. And so there are one part of uh, the magnetic sector is based on detecting those small magnetic fields. And, and, and that is a uh, very interesting way of studying human brains in vivo while the people are still alive and not being subject to some horrible uh, in, invasive detection technique just by looking at these small magnetic fields. And so that's one aspect of interest that the Magnetic Society has. And then the other aspect is uh, there's a lot of interest in uh, old computer science and electrical engineering of trying to mimic some of the things that the brain does and the way that the brain computes. And the interest of the Magnetic Society is is it possible to do a better job in some of those things using magnetic devices rather than just the typical transistors, which these things are most typically studied with? It's like the old story, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. This is a little bit more sophisticated that, and it's having, you know, we have some highly specialized screwdriver and is there any part of the brain science that actually looks like a screw that we could use that screwdriver on? And so there's a lot of interest in trying to identify ways in which uh, spintronic devices uh, can help mimic processes that compute the way the brain does. So talking about your specific field of interest, how is it tied to the study of the brain? Specifically, what I'm interested in now is uh, trying to develop the infrastructure to enable novel devices to do efficient brain-like computing. And the, the question is, all right, wh why, why is that an important question? Why is NIST involved in doing that? And the, the, the reason for that is that the brain is much better than computers are at particular tasks, particularly cognitive tasks. And so when computers were originally developed, we wanted them to do things that we weren't very good at, things like doing very high-precision calculations that would allow us to send something up and orbit around the moon and then come back safely. These days, we're 
asking computers to do a lot more of things that we're already good at, things like recognizing faces or, or recognizing voices or image classification. And there the brain is much more efficient than, the, than computers are. So a couple of examples. So one of the typical examples that sort of anybody uh, doing this type of computing frequently mentions at the beginning of the talk is the, the competition between a human and a computer at the game of Go, which is considered the most complicated game and was expected to be the last one that a computer could uh, become good at. Uh, a few years ago, a computer was finally able to beat a human in a uh, series of matches four to one. But during that competition, the computer was using 2,000 times more energy than the human was. And so we'd like to figure out how is the human doing things that much more efficiently than these computers are so that we could try to build some of that efficiency into the computers. Another example is artificial intelligence where it's an algorithm that's capable of generating human-like text. So it could write papers, for example. And it has a very complicated uh, neural network that, that does this. And to train that took 3 times 10 to the 23rd floating point operations. So that's a 3 with 23 zeros after it, a huge number. To do that on a single graphical processing unit, which is the, sort of the fastest computer available to do these things, if you just did it on a single one, that training process would take 355 years. And the amount of energy used in doing that is incredible. Now, estimates vary wildly. Uh, the smallest estimate I've run across is 500 megawatt hours, which, to put it in context, if you look at how much energy on average every person in the United States consumes, that amount of energy is enough, is, is equivalent to 50 people in the U.S. And so this is a neural network that's sort of achieving human scale capabilities, but is using vastly more energy than a human would be to reach this capability. And so the goal is, can we figure out how to drastically reduce the energy being consumed in artificial intelligence by taking advantage of trying to mimic the way the brain uh, processes information and to come up with devices that act more like the devices, i.e. neurons and synapses, in the brain operate. You know, so one of the interesting things to think about is imagine you're in a room and you're maybe 30 or 40 feet away from some person. If you look at that person, you can tell whether they are looking at you or looking a foot to your left or right. And the tiny differences in their eye direction that you're capable of figuring out to tell whether somebody is looking at you, you know, the ability to process that information it's just mind-boggling. So, Mark, what types of beneficial applications do you envision that could result from your work? 
what could come out of this work? So, you know, the, the, the work I'm interested in is trying to figure out ways to compute more like the brain to do it more efficiently. And so there's two benefits, immediate benefits from that, which sort of trade off against each other. And one is that we spend less energy doing artificial intelligence. The other possibility is that for the same energy, we do more, more artificial intelligence. And you know, it depends on what resources are, are limiting the amount of artificial intelligence we do. Uh, people make these crazy projections going out 30 years, whereas you just sort of extrapolate the amount of energy we're using on artificial intelligence it crosses the amount of electricity that, we're, that the whole world's projected to generate in something like 30 years. And so there's really a lot of incentive to figuring out how to use less energy doing this because uh, artificial intelligence could start becoming a real contributor to global warming if we can't figure out how to use less energy doing it. The, the other thing about artificial intelligence is that mostly this, this is being done on big computers. And so like if you do a, 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 something on your cell phone that requires artificial intelligence, typically that's not analyzed on your phone, but your query or the image or the, the, the speech that you're trying to get recognized gets sent out into the cloud processed in the cloud, and then the answer comes back to your phone. And the, and the problem is we just, it takes too much energy to do that in your cell phone, and it would drain your battery much faster than people would be happy doing. And so if we can figure out how to reduce the amount of energy it takes to do these types of computations, we can do a lot more of them locally right in the device rather than communicating with the cloud and back and having everything being done in big data centers. And so that, that's a, a, a driver besides just the amount of energy, but the amount of energy that an individual would need to use to do these sort of things. And so an example is uh, self-driving cars. People may not realize just how much information is being generated by the sensors in these self-driving cars and how much computer processing is necessary to be able to uh, tell the self-driving car what to do, trying to estimate what the power consumption of the computing and sensors is in a, in a self-driving car was that it's about 2,000 watts. That's how much power is being used in, in doing the calculations that, that do the self-driving. Self and this is about 10% of the amount of power that's being used to actually move the car in, in a typical small car. And so it's adding a significant amount of energy usage, which, and it requires significant cooling if you're doing that in a very localized processor. It takes up a lot of space. And so to make uh, self-driving cars much more uh, viable, 
we really want to reduce the amount of energy that it takes to do all this analysis. And, you know, one way is to think about it is, okay, so the, so the human brain is doing these same calculations at 20 watts, so using 100 times less power. So is there a way that we can uh, manipulate the information and process it by taking inspiration from how the brain does it so that we can start doing it with maybe 20 watts or even 200 watts? If we could get it down there, we could make things like self-driving cars much more economically feasible. Where do you see challenges or areas of concern that you feel need to be addressed in pursuing technology advancements? So possible concerns, of course, ethics was at the top of the list. And that's sort of a, a generic response to sort of any technology that you're developing. Uh, technologies often have wonderful promise, but they almost always come with some drawbacks and the possibility for misuse. And, uh, you know, the, the possibilities for misuse of artificial intelligence are, are huge. And, you know, that's something I worry a little bit about is if I make it that much easier to do artificial intelligence, am I contributing more to the benefit of society and or more to the, the drawbacks of society? And the, the only answer that I can come up with is that two things that have been happening in, in parallel. One is that technology has been advancing. And the, the other is, is that even though when we listen to the news, it seems like everything's always getting worse. My belief is that if you look throughout history, things have been always getting better. Even though they're not as good as they could be, even though there's always problems, things have been getting better in parallel with technology getting better. Now, that may not always be true, but that sort of gives me hope that mankind is able to uh, get more benefits out of advancing technology than suffer the drawbacks of it. Issues that I think that we need to address for the sort of particular area that I'm interested in that aren't really ethical ones at this point. And, and one is that I've kind of alluded to in some of the other answers is the brain appears to be very efficient at compressing information. So, you know, you have uh, your retina has lots of different information coming out of it. Most of that information that goes into the retina is processed by the optic nerve, and then much less information or information in a very reduced format is sent into the uh, central part of the brain to be, to be processed. And so we really need to understand how that's done and how the brain uh, is able to remember faces. It's, it's remembering some very compressed form of information about individual faces, but which is very capable of, you know, storing information about somebody's 
face for a couple decades and being able to recall that within seconds when you see somebody you haven't seen for uh, a couple of decades. It, it's really amazing. And I think that'll be one of the keys to figuring out how to do brain-inspired computing much more efficiently is by figuring out better how the brain does these sort of things. The other thing about my particular area where what I'm interested in is trying to figure out how to use novel devices, particularly magnetic devices, to do this type of computing better. And there's a temptation on the part of physicists, like I am, uh, to really just focus in on the device and the properties of the device. But I think in this area, it's really crucial to work with people who are electrical engineers or computer scientists because the properties that the device needs to have depends on what you're going to try to do with that device. And what you might try to do with that device, again, depends on the properties of that device. And so there needs to be feedback up and down what we refer to as a computational stack from the device details all the way up to the algorithmic development to try to figure out how to bring those two together and, and get them uh, matched up. And I, and I think that's an area you're starting to see a lot more work being done in that area, but I think that's a, a, a crucial area to work in where you need a whole spectrum of expertise to get the job done. Mark, looking to the future, what advice or insights can you share with students and up-and-coming young technologists who might be interested in pursuing a career in neuroscience? You know, if, if you're a young person and you're thinking about uh, what do I want to do with my scientific career, I, I have a couple of thoughts that might help you figure out what, what you want to do. And, and one is to work in active areas. So there's a drawback of working in an active area is that there are lots of smart people who are trying to do very similar things to do what you're doing, and they may scoop you. So there's a lot of pressure on you to, to work fast. On the other hand, if you're working in an active area, more people care about what you're doing. And that's really what the fun and research is doing, is coming up with an idea that affects the way other people do things or the way other people think about things. And the more active the area, the more people are going to be thinking about the consequences of, of what you're doing. Another thing I would say is uh, to change fields when you get the chance. And the reason for that is that when you change fields, it's new and exciting and there's lots of ideas that you're just learning for the first time and the, the key ideas in the field, and it's really neat. When you've been in a field for a while, you know most of those ideas. And yeah, the fields still develop and there's still new ideas, but it's still not the same sense of wonder that you get when you're working in a new field and you discover how clever people have been uh, throughout history. So I've, I've changed fields a few times in my past, and each time that I've, I've done that, I've been really enthusiastic about it. 
one of the other bits of advice that I would give is that a lot of the sort of really exciting areas to work in are areas that sort of fall in between traditional areas of, of research. And, uh, and that's because people really haven't thought about where these two things come together. And so if you can work in that area, that can be a really exciting place to work, and it gives you the opportunity of making really big contributions, which is a lot harder in a well-established field that's isolated from, from other fields. And if you want to do that, it's important that you're able to speak the language of more than one field. And so, you know, that's one of the regrets that I have. I mean, my, my life has been great. I wouldn't change anything about my career. But when I was in college, I went really deep in math and physics to the exclusion of all of the other sciences. I didn't take a college course in chemistry or biology. And now I really regret that because I'm lacking a lot of the basic language that it takes to talk to chemists or biologists or, in this area, neuroscientists of, of different flavors. And so if you're able to develop the ability to speak more than one language and talk to people in more than one community, you're much more likely to make uh, contributions in this area. And so, you know, a specialized advice related to, to, to the brain initiative is that, uh, you know, in here I want to address electrical engineers, physicists, computer scientists. I would strongly recommend anybody interested in those areas to really learn neuroscience because I think brain inspiration in terms of all of the things we've been talking about today is going to have a bigger and bigger impact in the future. It's going to have a bigger imprint on computer science, uh, physicists who are trying to develop devices for electronics. More and more of those devices are going to be geared toward different types of brain-inspired computing. And if you can understand neuroscience and be able to talk to people who understand how the brain works, you'll be able to absorb those lessons and apply them and make what you're doing that much better. The other thing I would say about working in active areas like this, where there's lots of competition, along with the competition, there are a lot of great colleagues to work with. And one of the most fun things that I have had in working in Spintronics and now working in Spintronic-inspired, uh, Spintronics based brain-inspired computing is the number of interesting people that I've been able to work with. And, you know, collaborations both inside the National Institute of Standards and Technology, interactions with postdocs, but also collaborations with people around the world and interacting with people at meetings. It's really exciting when there's a big community of people who are all interested in what you're, what you're doing, and it makes this type of research really fun. Thank you for listening to our interview with Mark Stiles. To discover more about IEEE Brain Activities and listen to other podcasts in the series by visiting our web portal at brain.ieee.org.